Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, the weekly podcast illuminating issues in agriculture and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are answered using a science-based approach with the goal of driving innovation to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Paul Vincelli. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss contemporary issues in science and technology with a focus on biotechnology and new innovations that can help people and the planet. I'm Paul Vincelli, sitting in for Dr. Kevin Falta, and once again, thanks, Dr. Falta, for the opportunity to uh, host Talking Biotech. Today, we'll be talking about uh, genetically engineered crops and sustainability a topic that often seems to go hand-in-hand for some of us, but others um, dispute that connection. So uh, uh, I'm very excited to have as our guest Dr. Mark Williams from the University of Kentucky. And uh, Mark, uh, welcome to Talking Biotech. Thank you for having me, Paul. I really appreciate this opportunity. So, Mark, uh, I, you know, I've known you for a number of years and always have enjoyed uh, our interactions, professional interactions. So what, let's start by uh, giving the audience some uh, idea of your academic background, your Ph.D. studies, and, and your uh, career generally. Right. Well, uh, I've always been interested in plants. And as an undergraduate, I got my degree in, in botany at the University of Kentucky. So at that point in my life, I was really interested in just learning about, uh, you know, science, plant science. And it came from a kind of a, a, a interest in the natural world and being outdoors and gardening and growing plants and things like that. And um, when I went to graduate school, I was interested in learning more about plant science. And at the time that I went to graduate school at the University of California, Irvine, um, you know, molecular biology was really starting to take off. This would have been in the, in the 1990s, in the early 1990s. And um, so I went to Southern California and started learning about plant molecular biology. And I'd always kind of been interested in the way that genes were regulated, uh, you know, genetics, cell biology, and, and kind of that part of plant science. And so I really embraced these ideas of, of molecular biology and, and thinking about uh, trying to investigate the way that gene expression can affect plant uh, attributes. Uh, and, you know, I was really just a basic research scientist. I focused on post-transcriptional gene regulation for my PhD work and, and specifically uh, worked on RNA editing in plant mitochondria. 
uh, and then I moved back to Kentucky. I'm from Kentucky. I moved back to Kentucky in 2000. I did a postdoc in California, and then my second postdoc in Kentucky, and, and switched to a lab to try to learn about uh, biochemistry. And so I focused on post-translational protein modification, specifically uh, uh, those involved with uh, modifications of Rubisco. And so, you know, really from, from the beginning of my career up until I uh, really got into my faculty career, it was all about plant gene expression, the whole pathway from, from uh, you know, uh, RNA through proteins and modifications that happen along the way to affect the way that gene expression happens. And then I became a faculty member in 2001 in the Department of Horticulture, and I was hired to do weed science work. Uh, and I didn't have a lot of background in it, but you know, I was in the department, and I had done some uh, some studies as a postdoc that that were looking at new molecular targets for herbicide design. So we were fortunate enough to find a um, a post-transcriptional modifying enzyme that. Uh, is called peptide deformylase, and it deformylates the informal group on newly uh, translated proteins. And uh, we we studied this this protein as a target for uh, killing plants, basically. And we found a soil uh, born um, or actinomycete from the soil that had a uh, a uh, compound in it that specifically knocked out this this enzyme. And so we could kill plants. And I'm at that point was really interested in in, in thinking about could we get a natural herbicide that was an effective, uh, you know, systemic um, broad-spectrum herbicide, and then could we make uh, engineering resistance. So that was my first experience really with genetic engineering, and we made uh, some transgenic tobacco plants. Tobacco's big in Kentucky. It was big in Kentucky at that time uh, that were resistant to this peptide deformylase inhibitor. And so that was kind of the start of my academic career. But prior to that, when I was a a, in California, I was a lecturer and taught classes in biotechnology. And at that point, you know, things were pretty, that would have been kind of late 1990s, things were really starting to take off in terms of some of the early generation GMO crops. And there was a lot of discussion about the future of biotechnology and all the wonderful things that it could do. And so, I, you know, I fully embraced the ideas, uh, you know, at that point in my career. And then when I started doing science and making GMOs, you know, that furthered that, that kind of thinking for me. But I took kind of a, a diversion from that just based on opportunities in Kentucky and a big change that was happening in our agricultural system with the ending of the price subsidies for tobacco. There was an opportunity to set up a research program focused on organic farming. And, and the justification for that was that from an organic farming perspective, weed control is, is generally regarded as the number one impediment to success in organic farming. And so I was focused on weed control, focused on natural products in weed control. And as I was trying to carve out an area for myself as a young assistant professor, uh, started to do some research on organic farming and thinking about organic farming from a weed control standpoint. So that sent me down a path of organic. And so uh, I established the organic farming unit at UK, which grew from a quarter acre in 2003 to its current like 30 acres or so on one of our research farms. I was fortunate enough to, to create an undergraduate degree program in sustainable agriculture, Paul, that you were involved with uh, in, in the early phases of and um, in, in the development of it. And so it, it's allowed me to really broaden my perspective of agriculture from genetic modification through organic farming, but with the overarching kind of umbrella for me in my mind as I organize things has always been how do we make our agricultural systems more sustainable? And so that's really where I fall down on it in terms of, or come down on it in terms of my, uh, of what I, what I think is how, how do, you know, these practices all fit within the spectrum of sustainability? How do we look at all of our agricultural systems from this rubric of environmental 
responsibility, social responsibility, economic viability, all of these things. How do we integrate those together to think about making our system more sustainable? That's right. Yeah, we've had great conversations on this very topic, Mark, and, and that I've appreciated your sort of diversion thinking in, in so many ways. Yeah, in fact, you, it's interesting to, to hear about your career because you actually came to uh, molecular biology you know, decades ago, and I, in, in contrast, as a, as a field plant pathologist, the work I'm doing now, providing outreach on genetic engineering of crops, is, you know, is relatively recent. I've only been involved uh, with this for a couple of years now, so it's interesting to see how we have these uh, different paths and can bring different ideas to the table for discussion. Mm-hmm. So let me just, um, for the benefit of the listeners and to remind myself, you, you, uh, you helped establish the Sustainable Agriculture Program. And you are the director of the organic farm as well. Is that here, here at the, re, the organic uh, research and education farm at, at the University of Kentucky? Is that a fair description yeah, of your current responsibility? I'm the, I'm the director of the organic farming unit. And I think it's, from okay. a listener perspective, it's important to note that one of the things that we do in this sustainable ag program is the program is about sustainable agriculture. It's not organic farming per se. It's all aspects of agriculture. And I think ultimately that's the punchline for me that I'll try to get across in this interview today is that I think as we move our systems forward, we need to use the best practices from all of these different approaches integrated together into a way that meets these criteria of sustainability. And organic is just part of that. It's just same as genetic modification is just part of that. And we can talk more about the integration of these ideas later. But the organic farming unit about is on the 30 acres, about half of it is, is focused on, you know, grant-funded research, federal grant-funded research projects, looking at everything from kind of systems-level questions down to, you know, plant-microbe interactions and, mi- and plant microbiome, you know, specific insects in, in, in certain cropping systems, things like that. And then half of the, uh, of the organic unit is used as a farming apprenticeship program for students in the sustainable ag uh, program where they can come and get hands-on experience on a farm. And so we are self-funded uh, through a community-supported agriculture program. So we market uh, the food that we grow to our UK community of faculty, students, and staff. We grow wholesale and sell to our UK dining services, and then we have two farm stands per week. So we're a self-funded operation. That allows us to create a real working model benchmark-type farm that we can teach from. So there's two kind of uh, central uh, kind of objectives on that on the organic farming unit. And, I, and the reason I bring this up is that it has allowed me to do something that's fairly unique from a professor standpoint, and that is, in, in addition to research and teaching and things like that, I've actually learned how to farm and, and created one of the, you know, a, a pretty high quality farm uh, for this region of the country that we can teach from. And so, I, I, it's not only uh, just lab work that allows me to inform my thinking. I actually involve with lots and lots of farmers, and although I don't have a formal extension uh, position, I have an administrative position, allows me to work a lot with farmers, and then we actually farm. So. It, it's really grounded a lot of my science, or, or and vice versa. It's, science has grounded uh, my farming, and it's allowed me to see what the limits that we know now are, and the, the kind of the overarching philosophy I've, I've developed through this kind of marriage of these two approaches is. You know, we have to be very careful when we talk about things. There's a lot of misconceptions in agricultural illiteracy, and what as researchers and as academicians, we have to focus on what science tells us and base our ideas. On, on what what we can say scientifically, we need research based uh, recommendations and things like that. So that's where a farm like that really really is focused. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and of course, I had a student, a PhD student, who did work out at at the farm you're discussing. Uh, some very interesting evaluations of uh, organic uh, suitable pr- approaches to. Uh, d- 
disease control in, in tomatoes. Um, so yeah, we've we've I, I always have appreciated your sort of eclectic approach to this topic. So moments ago, you used a phrase, two phrases that um, often don't occur in the same sentence, and that is sustainable ag and genetic engineering. And so to me, that's that's where I'd really like to um, sort of explore your thinking and share with the the viewers, you know, how do how do these two come together in your your vision of uh, you know where agriculture may go or, or should go? So one of the things I've, I've really thought a lot about as I've gotten deeper and deeper into this is you know you always hear people talking about about uh, you know can this type of agriculture feed the future or can or the, the, the you know the world's population in the future or can this kind of agriculture best do that? And you know these wicked problems of, of population growth and this kind of you know, awareness that we have of, of how big our population is going to get on this planet. And, you know, you hear all these numbers of nine plus billion people by 2050 and that there is a, a very strong mandate that we expand our agricultural system or at least expand the efficiency and ability to feed more people in a short time period. And so, you know, it's one of the things that's always on my mind is, is how can we meet these planetary objectives and do it in a way that doesn't destroy the planet or really mess up this planet. And, and as you know, Paul, our agricultural system is, is a wonderfully efficient um, um, you know, uh, system that, that has all these great attributes to it. But in, in, in fact, uh, there are a lot of negatives, too, from an environmental standpoint worldwide in terms of, of its environmental footprint. And with the, you know, the list goes on and on on the things that, that it does that we need to try to reduce or certainly not increase as we increase production or at least be aware of that and that's where I really see technology coming in but I think really some of these terms get misunderstood so when we talk about sustainable agriculture some people equate that with organic farming depending on what their knowledge of science, of, of, of agriculture is and 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 that's really a misconception I mean I think there's certainly some organic farms that that you would say are unsustainable and plenty of them that are sustainable and I think you could say the same thing from full conventional farms as sure. well what I really try to think of are, is it's not black and white. It's more of a grayscale kind of thing. Certainly from an organic standpoint, as researchers, we need to be aware of that population. It is the fastest growing sector of agriculture and has been for decades. There's a lot of wonderful things about organic farming, but it's not a perfect system. The same as conventional systems are not perfect systems. There is no perfect agricultural system. It's more of a spectrum to me. And so I think while we you know, it's justifiable to do research extension and teaching in organic farming for those farmers and for those consumers that want to buy something that has the USDA certified organic stamp on it for all the reasons that people talk about. Um, that's just one approach to doing things. What I ultimately feel like is the way forward is to take the best practices for or, from organic, combine them with the best practices of conventional, the best practices of genetic modification and put together a hybrid system that really starts to address this idea of sustainability. And I think there's there's increasing amount of research out there that suggests that there are certain aspects of conventional that we really need to critique from their negative environmental footprint, but there's also some really wonderful efficiencies that we've gotten with that system. So this idea that that is out there that organic farming just rejects uh, you know, the, you know the, the current technologies is, is, is not true either. There's all kinds of misconceptions on this. So I see maybe not per se in organic farming uh, a place for the traditional GMOs. What has really changed in my thinking recently is this new generation. In, in, in my way of thinking, you know, we're just entering into this new green revolution with 
the new technologies like CRISPR-Cas9 and things like that that are out there that I think will have a place or should have a place in organic farming depending on the way that they're done. So my hope is that we move forward in something that it may be certified organic or it may be something that's more of a hybrid approach that is these ideas of sustainability. So just for the sake of the audience, many of the listeners are, uh, are students, graduate students and professors and professionals, but some, some are just uh, the general public that are interested. So I, I want to just clarify, CRISPR-Cas9 is, a, is a, uh, basically a derived from a natural defense, a virus defense system in, in uh, bacteria that is used to, uh, with, with a rather high degree of precision, make um, genetic changes of, of a wide range of types, and, and uh, these can range from uh, creating extremely uh, focused and minimal mutations that would be no different from what would happen naturally to inserting a gene uh, into the plant in a particular location in its genome. Um, is that a fair description of CRISPR-Cas9? And, and, and if so, what, where, where would it fit? Give me an example of... Uh, right, right. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what my understanding is. And, you know, my understanding is, at least right now, that if there are new, no foreign genes brought into the plant, like it is a modification of a, a gene that's normally present, like a nucleotide in a gene that creates a different amino acid that's changed, something like that, the same as like breeding would be, and the footprint that's left in the genome is the plant genome, and it's no different than traditional breeding, that it, at least right now it's not considered a GMO. And, and I just w- would interject is I've seen papers where there is no remnant foreign DNA so in crops. So that's, that is a, certainly a possibility. And so putting in whole new gene pathways or genes from other species, you know, that would be more on, li- on the line of traditional GMOs. But the thing that is exciting me so much about these new technologies that, Paul, as you're aware, are only a couple of years old, uh, is that not only can we move away from some of the concerns that people have had with with traditional GMOs that have been limited to just a handful of crops, but we can create a system where we can make changes in a much more precise way, you know, kind of like a surgical way, people would say, where we can go in with, with, with much greater precision. And as we are, you know, our knowledge is increasing of, of, of gene expression and, and as more and more... Uh, species are being, you know, their genomes are being sequenced. We're starting to understand the genetic basis for a lot of, you know, uh, phenotypes that we observe. We can go in potentially, or the hope for this technology is that we can go in and much more precisely control gene expression and do it in a way that is very similar to traditional breeding in terms of its footprint. So not putting in antibiotic resistance genes, not, you know, the selectable markers, not putting in genes from foreign species, things like that, that's a possibility. But what makes it even more exciting is that the time that it takes to do this is much less than traditional breeding or even traditional GMOs and much cheaper. So, you know, it's my understanding that that it's a huge impediment to make a traditional GMO like Roundup Ready corn or soybean in crops that are, that are not huge, uh, you know, uh, crop subsidized crops or commodity crops doing it like in vegetables and things like that unless it's a huge industry is really difficult because it's so expensive and it takes so long so the hope would be that you know crispr cas9 which is becoming you can you know buy it from from molecular uh, uh, biology companies you know it's going to allow scientists to really do what to me 
was the, 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 the fundamental selling point on a lot of this biotech when I got into it, like, you know, being able to make, make changes in plants in, in a range of plants, not just corn and soybean and, and cotton and things like that, and doing it in a way that's economically viable and much more precise. So that really excites me about this. And if, if there is no change in the plant DNA beyond what, you know, normal breeding would do in terms of, of, of footprint, it seems like it should fit in into organic or at least a hybrid system that that um, you know embraces the best of all these technologies. Good. Well, yeah, this uh, these are these are great points, Mark, and so uh, I certainly appreciate your perspective. We're going to going to take a short break, and uh, and uh, we're talking to Dr. Mark Williams from the University of Kentucky Department of Horticulture. And when we come back, we'll continue to discuss CRISPR-Cas9 or genome editing technologies and other aspects of genetic engineering that may relate to sustainability. So, thank you all for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Hi, everybody. Yeah, the Talking Biotech podcast has really found a place as an important voice for sharing science with listeners excited to learn about the latest breakthroughs and concepts from the experts in biotechnology. And frankly, I'm grateful for the incredible listenership we have. And every week I'm amazed when I look at the numbers. And thank you very much for listening. Now, this week I need you to take a special action. I'm recording this on what would have been Dr. Sharon Gray's birthday. Now, she was a postdoc in Siobhan Brady's laboratory at University of California, Davis. And by all accounts, she was a rising star in science and certainly would have reached out to ensure equal access to training and education for many all over the world. I mean, that's the way she was rolling during her postdoc time and certainly evidence of this throughout her graduate career. And in an astonishing confluence of tragedies, Sharon was killed in Ethiopia last, a couple months ago anyway, while on a mission to meet with others regarding a scientific project. And the news of her loss really has reverberated across the scientific community. In response to the tragedy, a memorial account has been established in her name. And the goal is to provide scholarship support for outstanding women in science, hoping to encourage others to maybe reach into that gap that she's left behind. So please, if you can, go to the GoFundMe page, GoFundMe.com, Sharon Beth Gray, G-R-A-Y. Now, the Talking Biotech podcast comes to you for free every week, and I cover all of the associated costs, and I'm glad to do that, and it's fine. I do it without sponsorship. If you can spend... Five bucks, ten dollars, twenty dollars, hundred dollars, maybe more. It would really, really go a long way to enhancing the scholarship fund, and I really would appreciate that. Uh, personally, I was so rattled by her story. Um, the postdocs, the students in our laboratories are like family, and I know her advisor, and I can only imagine what it would do to her and to that community and to her lab mates. It's by establishing this fund and by helping with this fund, watching it grow, it's a great way to honor her life and really help provide some support that she would have absolutely have provided if she was allowed to have continued to grace us with her time in science. So please give, learn, and share her story. And thank you very much for your kindness and continued support of this podcast and maybe the scholarship fund for Dr. Gray. 
My name is Chelsea Boonstra, and welcome to the Boonstra Report, where we talk about all things agriculture. Plant breeding innovation has brought significant impacts in European agriculture as well as around the world. It's helping with increased yields and less effect on the environment as there's less inputs being needed. Europe did a study on plant breeding, and the study was to provide science-based but easy-to-understand information on the socio-economic and environmental benefits of plant breeding. It was reported that plant breeding contributes approximately 74% productivity growth on all major arable crops planted in the EU since 2000. This is equivalent to 1.24% yield increase per year. This also translates to a boost in the amount of available food, decrease in food prices, and economic prosperity. Because of plant breeding, we are using less fertilizer and chemicals compared to 15 years ago, all the while seeing many other benefits. Plant breeding enables sustainable intensification by allowing farmers to produce more with less input and reduce effect on the environment. Thanks for listening and be sure to follow me, Forever Farm Girl, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram on WordPress.com. As well, you can find me, Chelsea Boonstra, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you. Bye. And we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast with Dr. Mark Williams, a a professor from the University of Kentucky Department of Horticulture. So, Mark, um, let's continue on this theme of of, uh, sustainability and genetic engineering. You've got a lot of insights. Just give us some more. Okay, yeah. So, so, you know, this idea of of how do these new technologies like uh, gene editing that can be much more precise than the original technologies that are out there and, and much less invasive in terms of some of the things that the public really talks about or, or, or these kind of ideas about taking, you know, crossing species lines or, you know, creating a system that's reliant on an off-farm input like a herbicide and then, or a, you know, a constitutively expressed uh, pesticide in the plant all the time. There, there are strengths of those systems and there are things that are a concern about those systems. But, but the new technologies that we're just starting to look at, I think, uh, hopefully not only relieve some of those concerns, but they, they put us into a position where we can much more accurately modify plants to really achieve this, uh, these goals of sustainability. I'm going to give you an example of how one of these technologies I've been thinking about recently based on my research in organic. I, 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 for the last several years, I've worked on cucumber, beetle, and squash bug control in cucurbit crops, and these, these insects vector uh, bacterial diseases that, that are, you know decimate cucurbit production in this part of the country from an organic perspective. And in conventional perspective, we use a lot of neonicotinoid-based insecticides. To a, kill lot, a lot of insecticides, yeah. Yeah, which are implicated in colony collapse disorder and things like that, or people think, you know, that are investigating them from that standpoint. And, you know, any system that can reduce pesticides in the environment, is, is it just makes sense. And, you know, th- there is an attractant to these insects called cucurbitacin that is, it's kind of like when you get cut in the water and your blood attracts sharks, it's kind of analogous to that. These insects cue in on this, on this compound that these plants, uh, you know, make, and that's what they are attracted to. And so the higher the cucurbitacin level in plants, the more they're attracted uh, or attractant to uh, cucumber beetle and squash bug. So there's an example that maybe, and, and this is all hypothetical, but maybe a modification in the pathway or the gene that's responsible for that could be very, very precisely made that would create a system where you don't need to apply so many pesticides. And, you know, that's kind of, to me, a, a hope that we can start to understand the molecular basis by behind which these things happen and, and with very selected 
you know, intervention, reduce our use on pesticides and make the system more sustainable. To me, that just makes sense. And, uh, you know, I think at the heart of a lot of this, and this is what I think we've not done a great job as scientists on, is, is education. And we need to, you know, educate the, the public on any concerns they would have about these new technologies that are coming online so fast now that we need to be, I, I think, as, as, a, as a community, very, uh, very, it, we need to think a lot about how we deal with public education in this kind of next wave of GMOs and, and be clear that some of the concerns that people have had with the original GMOs that came out, you know, are they uh, valid now that we can do things in a much different way? And if, there, if, if those concerns can be uh, addressed, I think that we need to involve the public from, from the get-go on this so that we don't suffer from some of the, of the problems that we had originally when we talked about GMOs and there was a lots of misunderstandings uh, uh, about it. So we need to be real clear on the educational part of this and make sure that what scientists say is based on science because this is such a strong, heartfelt kind of thing when you talk about food and the environment for people. And we need to be really clear what science allows us to say. Wow, good. You're giving me some ideas. Uh, I'm, I'm actually going to be uh, uh, involved in uh, a meeting in uh, D.C. in a few weeks uh, on, uh, you know, sort of the future of uh, some of these new technologies with wow. respect to, you know, recommendations from my scientific society and other scientific societies. And so these are these are great comments and they help fertilize my own thinking. So what do you think about labeling? How do, how do you think that... I mean, there, there certainly is a case to be made um, for labeling, and uh, if if no no other, for no other reason, for social reasons, you know, to give people confidence in their food supply, to allow them to make the choice if they want to stay of, away from GMOs. Um, so, w- what do you think about labeling with respect to uh, genome editing technologies? These new technologies that we're talking about. Well, I've, you know, I've kind of gone round and round on the labeling over the years, uh, and. My, my my kind of my personal feeling is that we should label and concerns that I've I've heard people say of that you know and I believe this there there's not been really conclusive studies to show that the original GMOs that were out there are are unhealthy everything that I've seen is that they they're they they're, they're from a health standpoint they're fine and I think that's pretty consistent you know that literature probably yes. that better yeah. than I do Paul but that's yeah. that's what I've seen consistently mm-hmm. and and then what I've also heard people say is if we do label it's going to increase the cost of our food system. And, and you know, I haven't seen enough research on that for me to be very, you know, unequivocal that that's true. And, you know, there's labeling in other countries. And, you know, my personal feeling is we should give people an option. And, you know, I don't know how much it would change people's eating habits, even if they did know that things were, were genetically modified. But I just think from a, from a protecting our food system, from a transparency standpoint... As long as it was associated with good education, you know, I, I need to see more data saying that this is actually going to increase our our cost of our food system. A lot of the crops I deal with are horticultural crops, so they're not GMO anyway, at least at this point. Uh, so, so you know, it's you know, for a lot of the foods that we eat that are fed directly to humans, this would at least at this point is not going to be that that impactful. So, you know, I am kind of pro label, and I believe that it's the right thing to do to let people know where their food comes from. The more transparent we are in our food system, the better it is. So I think if, if there was a, a strong educational component to these new generations of GMOs and it was clear the way, the way that they were made, maybe it would re- reduce some of the concern that people have about this. And, you know, when, when people feel like that they're being, 
you know, this whole system's being foisted on them and they don't have any control over it and they're eating things and they don't know what's in their food, that causes misconceptions and it leads to this whole pathway. You know, personally, I, you know, I, I do support labeling. Yeah. 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 Very, very carefully in these new in these new GMOs that are likely to come out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I yes, and I and just uh, thanks for bringing in that point when I uh, said before uh, the the social value of labeling. It wasn't certainly for the audience's sake. I want to make sure I I say I'm not implying that there is a actually a biological hazard. I think the studies yeah. are very clear that there is no new risk, uh, no added risk from genetically engineered crops. Agreed. But but uh, so the biological or scientific reasons for labeling are, are simply not there. Right. But the social reasons, the transparency that you mentioned, the confidence in the food supply, those are, those are you know those are strong reasons for labeling. So I know our our listeners will differ on that, but I actually think you and I are on the same page. And and what you're saying is that um, you would extend that concept to include um, gen- genome editing based changes or CRISPR-Cas9 based changes. Is that, yeah, is I mean, that, you know, I'm still, this stuff is so new and, and you know, I, I think about it, but, I, you know, I don't think about it. I'd like to see both sides of the argument on this and I'd like to see some solid data to say what, what are the negatives of labeling and, and, and what, what's happened in other countries mm-hmm. and, and, you know, what foods are we even talking about that this would, would impact and, you know, all, all of this kind of stuff. I, I mean, to me, a lot of the way that we eat in this country is based on cost for a lot of people mm-hmm. and, I'm not sure it would change things that much in, unless the, the the price increased. Just to, if something, I mean, we, for a lot of people, especially people that eat processed food, they're eating so much GMOs anyway. I don't know if it would change. I'd like to see some stronger science on that, and maybe it's out there, and I just haven't seen it, Paul. But I think from a social responsibility standpoint, if nothing else, we need to have uh, more discussion on the pros and cons of labeling, or maybe it's it's happening, and I'm just not aware of it, and I need to educate myself stronger on it. But I, I do support labeling. And I think with CRISPR-Cas9, I think there needs, it's so new, I think there needs to be stronger discussions in the scientific community and, and beyond uh, about that labeling. But just on the surface, transparency in the food system seems to make sense from an educational standpoint because it can dispel misunderstandings that can, can lead to people thinking that, you know, a lot of those discussions that have, have, have happened about GMO, some of them warranted, some of them not. Um, you know, maybe that can be addressed with this new generation of gene editing. And, and, and if we do that, I think everything that we can do to educate the public on the safety of these is, is smart. Right. So, yeah, that's, um, yeah, these are great, great thoughts. So it, it, you've said a lot about uh, public education, but if you if you could um, pick out a single point that you think is is um, is critical beyond, beyond the transparency that we've already discussed, what would you recommend to somebody who is planning a... Um, you know, an educational outreach program on genome editing. Um, yeah, what would you? What would you? What would be sort of the top? Make sure you do this kind of thing. As someone that does both conventional and organic agriculture, uh, it depends on what group I'm with of of which way I want to be vilified. I'm kind of damned if I do, damned if I don't, depending on <laughs> what audience I'm with. Uh, but oftentimes, when I get in groups that that are you know more conventionally focused they want to put me on the hot seat uh, as an organic person and, and and just assume that I don't support GMOs or anything like that and vice versa and so one of the things that I, I hear a lot of people in the organic community that are very much anti-GMOs and I think they associate one of my feelings is they associate all genetic modification with Roundup Ready and BT Ready corn, soybean, things like that and I view a lot of those as kind of 
first-generation genetic modifications. They, in, in their time, they were a step forward in some ways, but they weren't perfect. And as oftentimes happens in science, you know, it's an it's a iterative process where we, we, we do things and then we learn, and that's part of the scientific method. It's critiqued by others, and it has to stand the test of time, you know, all of that. In this, and, and I think that it's, I think it's important to be very clear on how gene editing and these new technologies, the potential for them, which are unbelievable. I mean, it is, I really do feel like we're moving into this whole new phase of green revolution. Uh, we're not just GMOs, there's other technologies out there sure. as well. But, but, but that, that we're clear on how this differs from the original GMOs that were out there. In the similarities, but the differences. And because the differences really can address a lot of the concerns that I hear people talk about the original GMOs. Some of them warranted, some of them not. But, but you know, we can address that and be very clear on, from a health standpoint, a human health standpoint, an environmental health standpoint, and the justification for doing them. And I think, you know, if we can do those things and, and sh compare and contrast between what was before these new CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing type techniques, not just CRISPR-Cas9, there's other gene editing uh, methods out there, but, but how does this differ from that? And, and what, are the, what are the things that we learned from public perception on the original GMOs? Focus on that and say, okay, this is not like the original technologies. Let's look at this and say, we have to make our system more sustainable. This can be a really valuable tool if it's done correctly. And, you know, I think to me, just trying to dispel public perception of saying this is not like traditional GMOs is, is pretty important. Any last kind of comments for, uh, for the audience on uh, any aspect of what you said? Well, you know, what I started with was this idea of integrating these different approaches to agriculture. And ultimately, that's what I think, you know, uh, we need to be thinking about. It's, it's, there is not a one size fit all approach to agriculture and there is not one solution that is going to change things that all of a sudden our agricultural system is going to reduce its footprint on the planet we're going to be able to feed more people to make our system truly sustainable it's a multi-phased approach and i think this is one really important component to it is you know a coalescence of our our ability to sequence genomes and and you know all the next generation sequencing that allowed us to understand previously unprecedented rates the, the connection between genes and, 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 and you know, everything downstream from, from genes and the way that they're expressed and the way that plants grow. And that's opened up an opportunity to understand the genetic basis for so many things that now with that are these new gene editing technologies that allow us to think about can we go in and, and you know, accentuate or downregulate certain things that allow us to be more efficient with, with plant production. But that's just one part of the equation. You know, there is all this new technology that's out there from, a uh, you know, the Internet of Things to, to you know, uh, robots to all this precision agriculture. And then, you know, really assessing our diets from a worldwide perspective. And as cultures become more affluent and try to adopt the standard American diet, you know, that's not the way that, that's not the recipe for success in terms of from an environmental standpoint. So, it, so it's not, it's not a one, one thing that's going to revolutionize agriculture in a way that fixes things. It's got to be an integration of all these approaches. We certainly can't keep expanding agriculture on this planet from a, from a square footage or acreage wise and not, uh, you know, increase the negatives. We can't keep cutting down the rainforest. We can't keep, uh, you know, doing a lot of things like poisoning, you know, uh, or, or impacting water, surface water, groundwater, streams, all of that stuff. We have to be mindful of 
the the impact of everything that we do. And so I think this is one really important uh, part of this equation. Yeah, so, so just to recap a couple points that I think are really important in, in what you've said, you know, over the past few minutes. And one is the distinction, making the distinction to the public between sort of the first generation genetic engineering uh, traits and uh, and uh, those that we can you know do through uh, genome editing technologies and 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 finally uh, you've made the point about um, the importance of integrating uh, different vari- various useful approaches and technologies uh, because no single technology or or approach is going to be the answer uh, so we really we we really appreciate your your thoughts mark and uh, thanks for joining us today Thank you, Paul. It's been, uh, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. And thank you, uh, listeners, for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Follow us on Twitter uh, with the, uh, the handle at Talking Biotech. Write a v- review for iTunes and tell a friend to listen as your support allows us to deliver more exciting science to more people. I'm Paul Vincelli, and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.